Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome back to another installment of Going Nuclear with Justin Hewn, the Uranium Insider, and myself, Trevor Hall of Mining Stock Daily. This is presented in collaboration with the Clear Commodity Network. You can find previous Going Nuclear and all other content that ClearCom puts out at clearcommodity.net. And happy to welcome in once again. My friend and colleague in this endeavor, Justin Hume. Justin, welcome back. Happy Fourth of July. Hey, same to you, Trevor. Yeah, always, always enjoy our chats together. How are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, family visiting. You know, we're just going to celebrate Fourth of July. You know, this Fourth of July is only one day, but somehow us Americans turning it into a week long celebration. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, and it falls on a Tuesday next week, so I'm sure Monday is going to be a very, very quiet day in in markets and just in general. So all of a sudden, two days followed by a work day and then a holiday probably turns into a four-day weekend for most people here. Yeah, yeah, I I would say we have probably extended into Wednesday morning as well. So if companies had bad news that they needed to report, this would be a good time to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Uh, uh, Well, hey, let's kind of pick up where we left off uh, last month, um, you, you wrote another spectacular newsletter back in June, and there's a number of, I think, uh, bullet point items that I'd love to kind of pick your brain about. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners here would enjoy and maybe get a little bit of an update since it's been a number of weeks since that letter was published. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about geopolitics within uranium and nuclear energy, but I want to table that for just a minute because you had expressed a concern of increased security of supply of uranium going forward, not only for new supply, but actually rebuilding of inventories, which was pretty fascinating. And I think, I think it'd be fruitful for everybody if you could kind of expand on that a little bit and, and, and say, has things evolved over the last couple of weeks or do, are you still of the concern that, uh, you know, utilities are going to be really stricken with where they're going to get uh, get the uranium from? I don't think the concern about security of supply, um, my own concerns, I suppose, as well as the obvious concerns for utilities that are uncovered, um, especially going out towards the end of the decade, has uh, ha- has dissipated at all. In fact, I think that that, that concern continues to grow. Um for geopolitical reasons, and then just in general, uh, you know, the, the time it takes and the cost it takes to even bring care and maintenance mines back online, let alone build new mines. It's at the very best, a question mark. Um, and this, of course, is set against a backdrop of relatively, relatively stable demand picture, um, and potentially significantly growing demand picture that that, of course, is hinged on a lot of different factors having to do with um, proposed reactors actually getting into construction. But if you even model out the demand picture based on what's currently under construction now expected to come online, and some of the reactors set to come offline in the next 10 years getting life extensions, we're looking at a four to five plus percent per year growth in the in the industry mm-hmm. on the demand side. And that that's just kind of on a on a flat basis, when we talk about a key metric in the calculation for demand, which is enrichment tails assays. And, you know, we've talked about this a few times in the past. I know it kind of gets geeky and mathematic and we don't have to go back into that. But basically, the higher the tails assays it enrichers, the more uranium is needed uh, to produce the exact same amount of electricity in a, in a nuclear reactor. So if capacity is unchanged, which it's not, but if nuclear generation capacity on a global basis is unchanged and you tick up the tails assay uh, for the enrichment process for the material that has to run through the fuel cycle, the overall demand of uranium goes up. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing now is some centrifuge cascades for Western enrichers. So that would be Urenco and Arano. Some of those cascades have risen in their operational tails assay. So they've gone from, let's say, 0.18, 0.19, 0.2 up to about 0.24, 0.25. And that is an incremental increase in demand for uranium with all other things being equal. Uh, And on top of that, new contracts being signed by enrichers have even higher tails assays, which means the utilities have to buy more uranium, even to receive the same amount of enriched uranium they would have received in a lower tails assay contract in the past. So 
all of that is to sum up that the demand picture is stable and growing and the supply picture has a lot of question marks around it. And it's just a very, very fragile situation on the supply front that we're currently in. And it doesn't look to be getting a whole lot better for the coming few years, at least. Hmm. Well, uh, I don't know much. This isn't much of a silver. Actually, it's no silver lining at all. It actually makes things a little bit more complicated. Now, when, on, in regards to the supply, U.S. has banned the purchasing of uranium out of Russia. Um, and it sounds like more other for lack of a better term, G7 countries are planning on making the same moves. And so supply is getting tighter. Indeed. Yeah. It's, it's hard to say exactly what the, what, what the net effects of this sanctioning legislation will be if it passes. Um, They are of course, putting in some allowances, some waivers for utilities to be able to continue to access that material from previous contracts Um, at least for the next few years. And I think actually written in the legislation, the official ending of deliveries of that material would be like 2026. So for the near term, they're trying to protect primarily the operational uh, success of the domestic fleet. So it's it's more kind of um, planting a flag type language than it is actually cutting off that material. So uh, if a utility will be able to apply for a waiver if they can um, show that there are no other options and or if uh, the utility and the DOE um, independently or collectively determine that it's a national security issue for them not to receive that material. Hmm. Um, there certainly are at least a couple of utilities that would be in a bad place if all of a sudden this material were, were to just stop. There's not a lot of enriched uranium just sitting above ground and mobile inventory. Top of that, typically uranium uh, that is enriched has to be enriched to a certain percentage in order to be fabricated in the fuel for that particular facility. So if, if, a, if a nuclear utility has a contract for enriched uranium to be delivered from 10x out of Russia, that's set at a certain percentage point, uh, 4.4%, whatever, U-235, and that material gets cut off, then they have to immediately run and find a spot enrichment um, contract, which is short-term delivery for enrichment. It's very, very expensive, probably to the tune of two or three X what they would have paid to get that material from Russia. So it complicates things and it would complicate things. I think the statement it would make would actually be more impactful than the actual structural nature of what would be delivered considering the waivers. But the statement that they would make would be, to U.S. utilities, essentially, don't expect this to be reversing anytime soon and new contracts that you're going to have to sign for the continued operation of your facility for enrichment are going to have to come from somewhere else besides Russia. That's kind of the overall statement. But of course, there's an open question. What would Russia potentially do in response to that official sanctioning? You know, we don't know. It's possible they could just cut off that material if the, um, you know, the the invasion and the, the uh, military operation, quote unquote, turns into an actual official war. And the U.S. is supplying billions of dollars in weaponry to uh, Russia's enemy in this particular situation. I don't see why they would not just cut that material off, you know, in a a wartime situation and why they haven't already, to be completely honest with you. So it's (laughs) the situation is fragile. I don't really know how else to say it other than fragile. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we, you mentioned Russia and a little bit of geopolitics, well, a lot of geopolitics in there. So let's expand on this because um, part of the narrative in the last couple of weeks that I've been really interested in, I kind of perked up is reg- well, obviously regarding Russia. Uh, Kazakhstan continues to be the linchpin in discussions between not only Russia, but also China, uh, always kind of keeping one foot in, one foot out. <laughs> in those relationships, uh, nonetheless, probably for the best. Um, let's talk about that that trifecta here. And then I do want to talk about Ukraine because uh, there's been some news that's hit uh, uh, some news that's hit the tape here in the last uh, day or actually less than a day out of Ukraine. But let's talk about Kazakhstan. And really, it's in a precarious uh, position here uh, in the east. Uh, fragile relationships are obviously fragile, but you, they are really uh, keeping it close. I mean, close ties, but yet willing to kind of jump off the boat with both China and Russia right now. 
Yeah, I think really kind of the broad takeaway from what's happening in Kazakhstan is that more production from that country is likely to remain in the East. Um, that has to do with a very large contract that we've still yet to hear the details on. We probably won't hear until we hear the first half reporting from Kazatomprom as far as the size of the contract that they announced with CNNC, with China National Nuclear. Um, but that was a very large contract cumulatively, cumulatively with the pounds already under contract with CNNC. And this new contract would be more than 50% of the book value of the company and potentially up to 200% of the book value of the company. So it's chunky. Um, China, of course, has reiterated their plans of hitting 100, let's see, 120 gigawatts by 2030. And they have 53 gigawatts now of nuclear. So it's a more than doubling in the next six and a half years. They basically plan to have 10 to 12 construction starts in nuclear every single year. Um, and they've got 20, I think 23, 24 under construction right now. So um, China's going all out. They also have a plan of getting one third of their necessary uranium domestically, one third from projects that they intend to acquire internationally, and one third from contracts. Um, they will never get one third of their needs domestically until and unless we have $200 uranium and it sticks for years over year over year. And that way they can start to look into technologies, getting uranium from seawater or from phosphate tails. But mm -hmm. between here and 150 bucks a pound, they're not pulling it out of the ground in China. So more acquisitions are coming, more development internationally and more contracts. And the obvious solution for China is Kazakhstan. They share a border. They're building a gigantic warehouse right on the border between the two countries to store uranium. And uh, they're, they're going to continue to take more and more supply from Kazakhstan. And then, of course, you know, when you look at Kazakhstan's historical and present ties with Russia, I think, I think those ties are far, far more deep than the average Westerner, you know, reading the CNN headlines believes. Yeah. Um, it's an ex-Soviet country. Russia bailed them out with the civil unrest at the beginning of uh, 2022. There's, there's plenty of, of political and economic ties still with the quote-unquote fatherland or motherland. And even though they have denied um, wanting to support this invasion, which I do believe is their stance, they don't want to be involved in this situation in Ukraine at all. Um, and they've attempted to maintain, at least because Adam Promise attempted to maintain communications with the West, basically letting West know that everything is fine. You will continue to receive these deliveries on time, on budget, et cetera, et cetera. I think that there's a lot more concern in the country than, than they are going to ever let on, having to do with labor, having to do with sulfuric acid, supply chains. And this latest large joint venture um, is for the Budenovskoy six and seven blocks. This is a very, very large deposit, very large mine, was pushed through by the 70% owner of Kazatomprom, which is the sovereign wealth fund of the country of Kazakhstan, was pushed through at 49% ownership for Zatom. So they're deepening ties with Russia with this latest development. And the Western world is watching this. And Western utilities are seeing this deepening of, of ties with both Russia and China. And, and they produce almost half the world's uranium in, in Kazakhstan. So it's it's a big big deal when the the forty three percent producer of uranium in the world is deepening ties with Russia and China to any nuclear utility in France or in the UK or in the US or in Canada. You know they're they're going to have to sign contracts more and more so with Western producers, and there aren't very many options to choose right, from. Right, we talk about uh, concern of supply. I mean, this is real concern of supply for yeah. the uh, mid to long term. Uh, one last topic here, Justin, before we before we jump into our, our interview conversation. And this is one that's been really interesting for me. We talk about the concern of uh, weaponizing Ukrainian nuclear power plants in the war in Ukraine. Uh, and U.S. congressional... Uh, folk have come out and, and kind of expressed similar concern lately. We just got news today. So we are recording here Friday morning. We got news early this morning that um, Russian personnel are they're They're not fleeing. It's not fleeing. It's not, it's not the right word, but they're reducing personnel numbers at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Um, there's a little bit of speculation about why this would be happening. We know that the Ukrainians have done some drill testing, uh, 
in Inukora's concern about a nuclear power plant failure. Uh, so, you know, a little bit of hyperbole, probably some <clears throat> much needed well uh, training for worst case scenarios. But there's two things that I kind of want to follow up here and get your thoughts on. One, the weaponization of nuclear power plants in the Ukrainian war. And two, what would something, a disaster like that, do for sentiment once again for nuclear energy when we've just we've come so far since Japan this something like that would be a major setback sure well first of all i find it very difficult to get truly accurate information about what's going on over there just in general um i think that there is with, with the with the advent and prevalence of social media, I think that a lot of what's being communicated is strategic and not necessarily just actual factual information on the ground what's happening. So it's it's very difficult to tell. Um, with all of that said, uh, some facts about the Zaporizhia plant: it's a monstrous nuclear power plant. There are six reactors. Five of those six reactors are in cold shutdown. So there's, there's essentially no fissioning happening within that reactor core at the moment with five of the six reactors. The sixth reactor is in minimal operation. It's essentially basically there to keep the water pumps running and to keep a minimal amount of electricity to maintain the cooling, uh, the cooling of the reactor cores of the reactors. So if there were to be a quote-unquote meltdown event, it would be so minimal because the cold shutdown is in place for five of those six reactors. Um those reactors are within containment uh, domes, containment structures. So when you see headlines coming from Zelensky and and others that uh, Chernobyl Part Two is possible if they continue to attack and fight around this plant, that's a hundred percent hyperbole. That is not physically possible. That would never actually happen. We talk about the word explosion. It's just, it's just not how it works. And these containment domes are designed to withstand, you know, a jumbo jet crashing into the side of them. It's multiple meters thick of concrete. Um, so the concern around the meltdown is, is 5% of what is being expressed in fear mongering headlines, basically. As far as what the Russians are doing there, uh, I tend to just kind of think logically about what is likely happening. This is a multi-billion dollar asset. If you actually consider the rebuilding cost of this asset in today's money, we're talking about pushing $30 billion to build this, this size of reactor in Ukraine again. This is a massively uh, important uh, you know, strategic asset. Um, this exists in the area of the country that Russia was trying and potentially is continuing to try to annex. So this is, this is a key asset for them to maintain ownership of. As far as them drawing down, um, you know, workers at the facility, maybe that has to do with the fact that it's in, you know, 95% cold shutdown. Um, I don't really know. But does it make strategic sense for Russia to uh, blow up the Zaporizhia power plant? 100% no. So I think the headlines that are coming out with Ukraine warning that Russia or leaking information that Russia is about to do this, I think, are 100 percent BS. Um, Russia has nuclear weapons. There's no reason for them to destroy a 30 billion dollar asset to create a radiation event. And also there's this thing called wind. So, you know, if they were to create a radiation event, you know, it would potentially and probably irradiate their own country, which is not something they want to do so. I think most of these fear-mongering headlines are actually driven by the Ukrainian side of things, probably to garner support, which it's hard to blame them for doing that. But it, it doesn't add up to me that Russia has any strategic reasoning for causing an accident at this plant. And who, whichever side might end up doing so, the accident would not be anywhere near what they're trying to scare us into believing it would be. Okay. Well, good points there. I appreciate that, Justin. Thanks for bringing me off the ledge a little bit. Uh, all right. Well, let's jump into our conversation. Uh, I actually met Jeff at PDAC, and obviously we're talking about uh, the great work you're doing over at Uranium Insider. You've known Jeff for a while. He calls himself a uranium free agent. Uh, so he's he's involved in a couple of things, but he's definitely outspoken has a lot of thoughts opinions analysis on what's happening in 
the uranium sector right now. So it's going to be a really good conversation with Jeff. And uh, perhaps, Justin, uh, you and I, uh, enough of us, maybe let's talk, let's jump into our conversation with Jeff. That sounds good. pleased to bring uh, uh, our guest on today. We're joined by uh, my friend and colleague, Mr. Jeff Geringer. Jeff is uh, Uranium's most eligible free agent. He is, uh, he is uh, currently a fuel buyer. He has worked in uh, nuclear fuel uh, procurement. He has worked on the engineering side of nuclear. He has worked in the mining side of nuclear. He has a diverse background within the nuclear industry and a very keen understanding of this sector and of the, of the physical market as well. And Really pleased to bring him on today. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing good, Justin. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you on. Jeff, it's 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 great to have you on. I, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, in fact, we might need more time <laughs> to get through a lot of things as you have just, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it's been a, sh- I mean, your career hasn't been long. I mean, you're a relatively young guy, but you've just done so much here in, not only in uranium and nuclear energy. Uh, maybe a little bit of backdrop of why you decided this sector was where you wanted to kind of spend your career. Yeah, I, I, I think there are a lot of global issues that everyone is kind of aware of in our in our discourse. Um, a lot of people in the third world who don't have electricity, um, pollution, air pollution, especially caused by you know energy generation is still a significant problem. And uh, climate change and you know the abatement of carbon emissions is a you know, significant threat as well. And nuclear power sits kind of at the locus of all those things. It's it's clean, it's green, it's very energy dense, and it's not limited by you know precious resources in the way that that other um, that other energy generation methods are. And so when you look at you know where do you want to be at ground zero to solve you know these multi generational problems you know not just in the United States and Europe and in China but you know and all over the world and nuclear power is not if not the place to be it's at least one of the places to be. Jeff, Trevor, and I just got done chatting about um, kind of the fragility of the supply side and and kind of how I see a broader picture going out. Let's say for the next five to 10 years, to me, appears to be a relatively stable and growing and considerably de-risked demand side. Nuclear looks to be growing significantly um, at a faster pace than we had modeled out when I first came across this story, you know, four or five years ago. Yet the supply side seems like uh, the, the word, the best word that I could come up with to describe it was fragile. We talked a bit about Kazakhstan, recent joint venture with with Russia. Um, these large deposits they're looking to bring online with potential problems with supply chain, sulfuric acid, uh, these sort of things. It just seems like there's geopolitical and actual, um, you know, infrastructure and structural based concerns about the security of that particular supply, and and them being the largest producer in the world. Um, has a significant impact in the physical market. So I think, you know, just recently we've had a little bit of a shakeup in the physical market. We've had um, one large RFP and a, and a handful of other smaller and medium-sized RFPs over the last few months for uh, products and services across the, the nuclear fuel cycle. And we've seen a decent bump up in price. you have any thoughts currently on just the general, you know, structural nature of the, of the physical market here, any concerns that you're seeing and, and why are we seeing the price go up in the way that we are? Yeah, well, that is uh, quite a question, Justin. And if I knew all the answers to it, I would be sitting on a beach somewhere, sipping a Mai Tai instead of uh, in my living room. (laughs) But, um, you know, I think at a really high level, and I, I've had this conversation with, you know, guys who work at resource funds and, you know, commodity experts from elsewhere in the mining sector. And I kind of cynically like to lead these conversations in with, you know, forget everything you know about commodities. Like you're an expert in oil or gas or iron ore or something like that. And just recognize that uranium is a weird enough bird that trying to apply the lessons or the trends from other markets onto uranium often don't quite align. 
And so I always like to begin these discussions with sort of, you know, first principles. Like how is the uranium market structured? So it's a small market. It's not financialized. There's no futures or future options of any serious volume. And it's all physically performed. So in um, natural gas, let's say, your price or your hedging is going to be determined by options, but then your physical delivery contracts are going to come from someone else. And in uranium, because there's no financialization, it's all the same thing. The person you're buying the uranium from is putting it on a boat and they're delivering it to you. And so that physical performance is, is, is a really key feature of it. Uh, you order something and it, and it shows up. Um, and so even when you look at the standard transaction, um, 100,000 pounds of, of yellow cake of U308, that's something between a tenth of a percent and a few hundredths of a percent of the annual market. Um, so that's like the standard unit of a crude oil transaction being 15 million barrels. Um, so it's, it's not really worth comparing sometimes uranium to other commodities or two completely different things. But I want to impress on your listeners that one of nuclear power's chief advantages um, that it only needs a partial refueling every other year and that it's extremely dense in land use and fuel use. It also impacts the structure of the market. And so that 100,000 pound quantity fits on four trucks. It's not you know, it's, it's not a, you know, this constant flow of material internationally. And so um, to kind of move to the next, you know, part of your question, you know, regarding, you know, the current state of the market, things are very physically tight. There aren't many companies at each stage of the nuclear fuel cycle that can actually provide, you know, quantities of services right now. And everyone knows each other. Um, you know, you can find a couple of times per year where almost everyone of decision-making consequences sitting in the same conference room, listening to the same talk. Um, and I, I don't know if you can say that about other spaces. And so phenomenal, fundamentally, you know, if, if you just start from, again, first principles, like this market is weird. And so every discussion has to kind of stem from this weird market structure. Hmm. So where, where do you want to go next on that, Justin? Uh, actually, I want to jump in here, Jeff, and, and, and ask you, it's a simple question. With the, all these variables going on in the market right now, how does the spot price of uranium fluctuate? I mean, the spot, obviously there's buyers and sellers, but you have a number of investment vehicles that are coming online, taking physical uranium off the market. You've got geopolitical, um, you know, <laughs> uh, things going on to where, you know, basically the West is not going to be able to buy from the East, specifically Russia. I mean, there's a number of things going on. So how, we went for a long period of time where the spot price this year did absolutely nothing. And then we're starting to see a little bit more buying in the spot market. But I'm just kind of curious, what is moving? What moves the spot market itself? Yeah. So, you know, uranium, you know, compared to, again, other commodities, its its density is so high that storing it is not a, it's not free, but it's it's not difficult in the same way that storing, you know, five days worth of oil, global oil production would be. You know, there's there's plenty of places in the world where huge quantities of uranium, many years of global demand are stored. And so you start from like, you know, what is the spot price? And because storage is cheap, the spot price is kind of also the midterm price, which is kind of also the term price, that because the market structure is sold over the counter and there's no financialization, what moves the spot price is volume, um, new contracting, new buying, new selling. But what also moves the term price is also volume and contracting and selling. And what connects the two is often the rate of, of capital or the perceived availability of future supply. Um, and so often, you know, price moves in little, little, you know, fits and starts. So somebody goes out for an RFP, somebody wins that RFP, everyone finds out through the grapevine or directly what that price, whatever won the RFP, and that's, that's the new price. And because, you know, this isn't happening through computers, it's not happening through the comics, it's not happening through options, it's happening of people calling each other, sending each other emails, in some cases, a couple of utilities actually require you to submit hard copy letters in person um, in their native language in some cases. And so this is like oil was traded in the 60s. This is yeah. not a modern commodity. And so how price moves is you buy or sell. Um, and when there are periods and, you know, this isn't a liquid commodity. When there are periods where things don't sell, the price doesn't move. 
or so, sometimes the price even moves on indicative offers. And uh, a guy who's a lot smarter than me said, you know, you don't report the offers that you didn't sell your house for. Uh, you know, you 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 only report, you know, the winning bid. Um, and so even the way that we understand price on a daily basis is not even through volume. Um, it's just sort of the hint of yeah. where volume could be priced at. So does it take somebody like a Mark Rich-esque in the uranium sector eventually to come in and start kind of setting up a centralized market for uranium? Do you think something like that could happen eventually? You know, I always take my lucky stars when I was on the buy side that there wasn't a Glencore in the space. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do I do think that uranium is, you know, to, to use gendered language, kind of a gentleman's game. You know, nobody's doing anything too, you know, too aggressive in terms of, you know, trying to, to affect the market or change the market in, in, in most years. But I think you're right in that there is an opportunity for capital or for single producers to kind of, um, you know, imprint their views on the market. And I think in a lot of ways, the major producers do. I mean, you have three companies which make up 50% of the, you know, the production and their views and the views of their leaders like truly do affect how we think about, about the space. Um, but so far, you know, we, we can understate, um, you know, the effect of Sprott's entry into the market and how the Sput fund has changed our, our thoughts about it because it provides a, a triangulation. So I guess I'm going to call myself a liar, but I, I mentioned the market being illiquid, um, that there are weeks where there's no physical trades. But then I look at the, at the Sput vehicle and actually there's a ton of volume in that vehicle. So in a way, people are trading thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds every week. It's just they're being traded in the form of shares rather than in the form of uranium. And so I can't understate the effect of that transparency on the market that instead of just wondering, okay, what was the next deal concluded at? Or when or where could the next deal be concluded at what price? There is a, a stock ticker out there that basically says, well, here's a price that people are buying and selling shares at. It might not represent the physical market, but it does represent something kind of like the physical market. Um, as we have the Zuri AMC entering the space, um, I know you had Bram on the, on the, in the last episode. Um, you know, it's, it's providing us with another data point of how we can understand this hard to understand market. But you know, maybe to wrap up that thought, maybe the reason why we don't see a power player like a Mark Rich in the space is that the opaqueness and the resistance to change is high in this sector. And so when there's so many other opportunities out there to make money, um, higher risk, higher reward, you know, uranium does have a barrier to overcome where the current state of the spot market or how things are priced, how things are sold is inherently hostile to outsiders. And so if you're in the space, you might say, good. But if you're trying to sell a, an equity or a product or a company, that opacity might be a headwind to getting people who are not currently in the space to pay attention to it, to allocate capital to it and, and such. So, you know, it might just be that the Mark Rich hasn't come of uranium hasn't come around yet, but it also might be that the potential Mark Rich uranium looked at the space, threw their hands up and said, no way, and bought a couple lithium mines. Maybe you're the Mark Rich, Jeff. Ooh. Well, I uh, really like living in the United States, so I don't think you'll see me doing anything quite quite like that. Well, think but, of um, how many like political power players you could make friends with. <laughs> I think at at the end of the day, I have an engineering background, and I, you know we're not uh, we're not men of international intrigue generally for the most part. <laughs> Few exceptions. Jeff, something that you said a minute ago. <clears throat> Uh, really caught my attention. And that was that the perception of supply av availability can sometimes move the physical market. Um, I, I obviously just immediately thought back to the previous market and how during kind of the, the bull market of the, of the previous decades that, uh, you know, 04 to 07 in specifically, we had an already rising price based on 
basic kind of supply and demand fundamentals and utilities coming back to the contracting table and some things sort of mirrored kind of what we're seeing now. But you really had, you had 20 million pounds a year coming from megatons and megawatts and never really actually had a significant supply shortfall during that run. But there certainly was the perception of supply constraints, especially with with the mine floods and uh, a couple of other elements that came in. So what what is the perception of supply availability right now in the physical market. And, you know, we, we always like to talk about price on the investing side of things because it's the movement of the spot price that the market watches and that tends to actually move the equities. But, you know, price aside, this looks like a very, very tight supply side in this market, especially in the next few years with primary producers being mostly sold out of material. And even though utilities are mostly covered for that same time period, what's the perception amongst utilities in the physical market right now? Yeah. And in a market that is a liquid sold over the counter for all the reasons we've, we've discussed, sentiment matters more mm. than it does in other in other spaces. Um, so thinking about that 04 to 07 run up and full disclosure, I was in junior high in 2004, so I wasn't there, but, um, part of, you know, being a a fuel buyer is, is being a fuel market historian in a way. And so I've spent a lot of time trying to piece that together. Like why did uranium go from $9 to $140 in a three-year period? It's, it's, it's pretty impressive to look at that chart. And I think, you know, kind of the, the the novice answer is well cigar lake flooded and suddenly there was no supply and the price went up um but i i think the real story is is more interesting or more nuanced and and that it wasn't just the cigar lake flood there were other mining issues that delayed or or shut down product uh, projects there were a couple of parties in the market who didn't obey or didn't follow their contractual guidelines. Um, so a trader defaulted on some deals, a producer defaulted on some contracts or some traders who then defaulted on their contracts with utilities. And so I think the theme maybe, or the two themes from that era are one, there was serious momentum towards new builds in the United States, especially, and almost none of them actually ever materialized. And even fewer came into, you know, very few came into construction. But the, um, I'm going to use the word, but the nuclear renaissance, um, you know, was a was a meme. Right. And so people sitting at the fuel buying desk, looking at the future of uranium, were worried that the demand was truly going to outstrip the supply. So even in hindsight, we look at that and say, oh, there wasn't a deficit. There wasn't a deficit. From what I understand, talking to people who were there, like it sure felt like there was going to be a deficit. And then the second half of that is this is an over-the-counter relationship-driven space. And so the moment that you get defaulted on a contract, you get deferred on a contract, your physical delivery doesn't make it, you're worried about not just replacing that delivery, but also the sanctity of every other contract you have in the future. And so what we saw in that period was people overcovering, And they were overcovering because they were worried that other contracts in their book were also not going to deliver. So when we move to kind of today's market, you know, what themes are we seeing? We are seeing legitimate questions of where the supply is going to come from versus the current demand, let alone future demand. And, you know, believe me, fuel buyers and other market participants are aware of SMRs. They've, they've done their homework, but there is a fear in the you know, middle of the decade, late in the decade, you know, where are serious quantities of pounds going to come from? And so I think fuel buyers on the whole are beginning to realize that they're going to need to collaborate with producers who are, are potential producers, people who are not currently producing to bring on the supply necessary to fuel their reactors. And later in on top of that, the geopolitical elements that were not there during the last cycle. So maybe their sensitivity towards where the pounds are coming from in five years is increased and so we have seen over the last six months to a year and, and even prior to the invasion of Ukraine, um, a slow ticking up or a slow marching up of the price as utilities are looking at the future and are finding that, yeah, the price probably needs to go up if the supply is, is, is going to be there. And don't forget that there are real threats to supply security right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there haven't been Russian sanctions, but... You know, there are active legislation, um, you know, the logistics coming of uranium coming out of Central Asia have not been disrupted in a way that has prevented, you know, supply from reaching the West. That could change. Um, we have not heard about the saber rattling over Taiwan, 
but you know the Chinese your companies of Chinese origin play a significant role in the space. And so if you created a big board of all the things that could go wrong, that could bring us into sort of that 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 scared default driven sort of supply mentality, there are many things that can happen or may happen or might happen that um, could could bring us there again. And I think utilities are intensely aware of those risks. That's their job. For as much as we think of them as commodity predictors or knowers, the utilities are really more, fuel buyers are really more like risk managers. Mm. Um, it's doing your best to find the right balance of price and risk and flexibility to do what's best for your company or your ratepayers or, you know, whoever is on the top of the, the top of the list. Let's talk about the other side, Jeff, the investment side, and we can have a debate on <laughs> if how risky that is right now. Um, Listen, and you mentioned the last cycle of 2004 to 2007. Uh, I was in grad school at the time, so a little bit older than you. But, you know, obviously I wasn't involved. But I do feel like a lot of the uranium investment bull thesis is still kind of hung over from that time. And even even though it was like 15 years ago, and we've always heard, you know, the uranium's got to go higher because of this. That means the equities got to go higher because of this. And it seems like every quarter there's, there's for, for the last 15 years, but there's been a new reason of why uranium needs to go higher. And I absolutely get it and support it. But the simple fact is it just really hasn't. Yeah. I, I think my bear case for uranium has never been price won't go up. I think my bear case for uranium has always been you an individual investor will not realize any returns. If, or when uranium goes up. And so you get into questions of allocation of what companies people own, how they choose to invest, are they using leverage or not using leverage? Um, you know, so that's not my really, ten, hasn't tended to be my interest in the past, but it is one of those things that we have this hangover from the last cycle and people will pull up a chart of some, you know, micro cap explorer who did a thousand X and will say, oh yes, well, that's going to happen again. And if I can give one bit of wisdom, both from the investment side and the supply side, is that even though I was not there and many of my peers active in the space were not there in 2004 making those decisions, we all know what happened. And in many ways, we dealt with the legacy of the contracts and the structure of the market. Um, so think, you know, post Fukushima, the exuberance of bringing on all these mines Watching that price march down from oversupply post Fukushima, everyone remembers that happening. Some of my fuel buyer peers have contracts on their books that were signed in the heady days of, you know, 2009, and they got to watch, you know, above market uranium conversion enrichment, whatever, come in for years to come. And the same thing I think looks at some of these, you know, some of these investments. And so that that hangover, I think, works in a positive sense, where people have this expectation or have this awareness that, yeah, price can do crazy things. The equities can do crazy things. But the backside of that is there are many people that were there or were trained by the people that were that are also skeptical of diving into long-term contracts, high prices, you know, very non-commercial things because they don't want it to happen again. So, yeah, there's echoes from 2004 to 2007, but not all those echoes, you know, are, are price positive or, or demand positive or, or things like that. And um, that was kind of like my first, you know, lesson is, you know, why, you know, what the first octile of, you know, utilities paying for uranium and the EIA uranium marketing annual report, like, you know, uranium is only $17. Like, why are these guys paying 80? Someone sat me down and they're like, oh, son, let me tell you about 2007. And, yeah, yeah. Um, but it, 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 you have to be, I mean, not just in uranium. I mean, if you're talking mining, specifically exploration mining, mm -hmm. you, you are always an optimist, whether you're actually working a project or investing. Yeah, mining is the ultimate optimist business. I mean, no one is sinking holes in the ground looking for dirt they're they're looking for uranium gold you know whatever it is they're looking for and nuclear power to some degree is an optimist business too um you know 
we believe that this can solve our problems. We believe that these reactors can run for 80 years. You know, we believe that the steam generator is going to keep working, you know, until its natural life, you know, that every problem has a solution. So when you combine that into mining, you do see some optimistic junior mining CEOs who have some very aggressive price projections as to where things will go, because we're all optimists here. Nuclear power will grow in size. It will expand to new countries. We're going to electrify the damn world. And uranium to the moon. That's that's kind of what you'll hear from a lot of those people. But I I don't like talking about price. Um, you know, in, in my past work, you're not allowed to talk about price. You're not allowed to make those predictions. But I think if we're not going to talk about price, we want to start talking about where the pounds are actually going to come from. What's the current structure of the market? What's the future structure of the market? How can we see through the mists in our crystal ball to begin to think about what this market will look like in five, seven, 10 years. And I think fundamentally simple, there's not a lot of companies right now that are producing uranium. There's a few companies with brownfield assets that could restart. Um, there's not a lot of economic information on some of those restarts, but we're very dependent on all those companies hitting the mark to bring their supply back on to a market that really needs it. And when we look at the next seven years, you know, let's say through 2030, there's a really limited number of greenfield projects that can produce economically anywhere near the current price. Um, and many of them are dealing with permitting issues or, you know, permitting timelines, let's say, if not issues. Some of them are in jurisdictions that are less than conventional. And, you know, the market really depends on the collaboration of fuel buyers and traders lining up to help baseload some of those projects to get them into production. And that is not going to happen for a lot of those people at $56 a pound. Um, and so for, you know, I won't give you a destination, I'll give you a direction. And I said, if we're going to get to 200 million pounds of supply in this market, the marginal guy needs to make money. You know, they're running a for-profit company and you can choose your own adventure on what project you think that'll be, but it won't be, won't be $56. Um, and, but, you know, again, because I recognize people are checking their, you know, their brokerage accounts every day and they want it to happen now. But I, I think there is a, an element of patience that we all have to have here that what's going to happen tomorrow with sanctions or spot RFPs or, you know, other RFPs not being filled or not being filled is kind of disconnected from where this story is looking in, in a handful of years. Um, and so I always seem like a buzzkill when I say that, but, you know, I'm a lifer in this space. And so maybe I can just take a longer view because of that. But, um, you know, Justin, it feels like you're almost an old head at this point too. So, um, you know, maybe you're locked in here forever with me. It does feel like that. Yeah, no, well, I, I definitely just, I, I just love this space. I really enjoy, uh, all of the relationships that I've made, um, with folks like yourself. And I think there's this industry is full, especially the nuclear side of the industry seems like the folks that I've met have generally been good people and the mining side is kind of hit and miss, but you know, that that's also, uh, most of my, my communications and relationships have been relatively positive on that side. Um, but I am, I'm, I am very positive and optimistic to, to use that same word again on the space and, I completely agree with you. I think that the supply side is uh, when you mentioned, if we're going to get to 200 million pounds of supply to put that into context, what are, what are we looking at this year in terms of primary supply? 135 million. I, I think with MacArthur, we're looking at a little bit higher, yeah. um, maybe 2024, um, you know, with, with the presumptive resumption of longer Heinrich and a little bit more capacity at MacArthur, um, some of the U S production, um, so I, I, I think it's above 150, but, you know, yeah. we'll see. I mean, those pounds haven't been produced, and it kind of depends on on where Kazadam Prom hits in, in, in guidance. But, uh, right. you know, Justin, I, I know you recall, you know, you and I actually went on a, on a mine tour together, a mine site tour together yep. when I was still a fuel buyer. And uh, I have to say it was really cool watching you interact with some of the other fuel buyers. Hmm. Um, and it's something that five years ago, even three years ago, there was not really any cross-pollination between – the nuclear fuel market participants and the um, and the investors, um, you know, retail or or institutional or otherwise, and so it's been really cool. And, and you're not the only one, but to right. see, you know, pair at WMC doing work, Bram at Curzon doing work, and and other people kind of doing media, because now the average outsider is now a lot smarter than they used to be, and so I will be the first to admit. Um, I, there are people in the space that turn on Twitter and learn things, 
Yeah. Um, not only is it a great source for news, sometimes, you know, you see things on there from, you know, quote unquote amateurs and you say, wow, that's, that's insightful. Like, I, I don't know if it's right, but like, it's at least making me think. Right. Um, and so, you know, there, there have been some, some recent news items, you know, circling on the Twitter sphere, if you'd like to discuss any of those. Sure. I mean, I, I mean, just to respond to that, I, I do remember that mindsight tour and conversations with other fuel buyers. And um, one of the one of the things that stuck out to me most during one of those conversations, uh, and this person will remain anonymous, but a fuel buyer told me that that he had to explain to his uh, superior at his uh, facility, he had to explain to his superior what the new nuclear fuel cycle was. And I was I was absolutely shocked to, to hear that. Um, but it's interesting. I think that it, it almost feels like there's a little bit of a collaboration from the investing side and the fuel buyers, uh, just generally and broadly speaking. And I don't know if that's because just super high level, the investing side has gotten their future projections more right than the uh, nuclear fuel consultancies have on, let's say, a five-year period. So folks like yourself, I remember talking to you a few years back and you were kind of a, somewhat of a first mover in terms of sort of believing in some of the work that the investing side had done and expecting that the price would end up going higher and securing fuel for your facility uh, at significantly lower prices than what we're seeing right now in the market. And, uh, you know, perhaps maybe the the nuclear fuel buyer side has maybe recognized that the investing side is, is uh, invested in doing correct work on modeling out the future. Yeah. Or at least at the very least, you have people that were very afraid to talk to anyone who was not part of their club that now, you know, that, you know, Mike, Mike Alkin over at, over at Sachem Cove was, was really critical in kind of getting some of this message out there. And even if it wasn't well received by everyone in the room at the time, um, it ended up being very prescient. I think people, at least on the sell side of the fuel market, have begun to realize like, oh, these outside voices that are following the space are looking at it with fresh eyes. They really have something to, to teach us. Um, and yeah, so it, it, but what you do see now is you are starting to see those conversations happen and interesting tidbits of information begin to kind of leak into the Twitter sphere and um, sometimes without context. Right. Um, well, I, we probably should wrap up relatively soon here from a timing perspective, but if you, do you want to give us one example of something that you've seen from the Twitter sphere recently that kind of got you thinking or, or perhaps yeah. was, was directionally uh, intriguing? Yeah, I've got two for you. Okay. Um, uh, the first is, you know, one of my favorite anonymous accounts, a guy named uh, Harry, Harry Chris, um, always seems to have some, some interesting things to add. And I remember him posting a, Uranco annual report where their waste treatment fees for tails material went up. And so for, for the uninitiated listening, you know, you run an enrichment facility, you put natural UF6 through the enrichment facility, you get enriched uranium out. And what you're left with is these depleted tails materials. And you can't just bury them in the ground. You have to deconvert them, treat them, manage them to eventually, you know, turn them into a neutralized waste form. And one of the impacts of the Russian conflict in Ukraine is um, the tails assay. So the amount of waste or the amount of UF6 that's being pushed through the, the, the enrichment facilities is supposed to go up into what you know people call the overfeeding mode. And so one of the impacts that would have is by putting more UF6 into the plant to get more uranium, enriched uranium out of the plant, you would also produce more tails material. And so Harry points out in this Urenko report, oh, their 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 waste you know, their waste costs went up. Are they producing more waste? Is that um, mm. um, an evidence of of overfeeding? And I remember I looked at that and I said, oh wow, it's it's evidence of overfeeding. And then for a couple of months there, I was really convinced that that was the case. Um, but then I thought about it longer. I was in the shower, I think, and I said, oh wait a second, Urenko canceled the agreement they had where the German facility sent tails material to the Russians for re-enrichment and disposal. And I said, well, maybe this is a more complicated subject than I thought it was, but it, it's nice to say there are some interesting things that go on. Um, and then kind of the second one is, you know, I, I know a lot of people have been talking about um, this partial RFP fill or this recent near-term spot EUP agreement. And 
it'd be really bad form for me to comment on a specific RFP. These things are confidential, by the way. So anybody that gets them that's talking about them to anybody who's not in the tent is, you know, kind of being naughty. But, you know, we do get a nugget of truth there in that, you know, someone was looking for some relatively near-term enriched uranium. And when we look at the current state of the market, there's two non-Russian enrichers that sell them into the West in any series volume. There's three converters. There's a very small number of uranium suppliers capable of fueling a million pounds within the next couple of years. And so everyone that has this uranium, this conversion, this enrichment knows that there isn't much of it out there and that's not going to change for a while. So how would you as a seller approach that request? Well, you might not actually want to win the whole quantity because at a fixed price, if you're winning the whole quantity, you're probably doing it wrong. Um, so on the other hand, you know, it's a relationship driven industry and there are a lot of eyes on the nuclear fuel sector, um, especially as the European and U S supply chains try to disconnect itself from Russia. There's a lot of eyes, a lot of eyes on the space. And so if you have the capability to fulfill any enrichment or conversion right now, you probably want to participate to help out anybody that needs it, but it would be, you know, bad faith for everyone in the industry if a utility ever didn't get their fuel or it'd be a very bad situation if a utility ever ran out of fuel. And so just this this kind of buzz around this RFP, it, it doesn't mean there's not fuel out there to be had. It just means that commercially, maybe the first time somebody looks for an offer, they don't get exactly what they're looking for. But that's good business. Jeff, last question before we let you go. And thanks a ton, mate. This is such a really good conversation. Uh, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, uh, but you have a lot of good insights into nuclear energy and uranium sector. What does, you know, maybe, maybe what, not necessarily what you want it to look like, but what does nuclear energy infrastructure in the West look like to you in the next 10 years? Yeah. Um, so I guess the question you would ask is, what is the West good at? Um, and well, I, and I'm a yeah. Increasingly, we're seeing players from not the West be very good at baseball. In fact, uh, maybe the best player in the world is not from the West. But um, I think when you look at U.S. factories or American factories or Western factories, and you say, what what's the definitive advantage that we have in the West? And in the context of my nuclear fuel travels, I went to a facility that made um, waste containers for fuel, dry storage containers. And what I saw in that facility was automatic welding machines, automatic weld checking machines that were pumping out day after day, hour after hour, the exact perfect welds over and over again. And so what the West I think is good at to me is engineering machines and technologies to automate processes to do a thing over and over and over again constantly and do it right. And so what we saw in when we were trying to build the big reactors in the last couple of years is we did see some quality control issues. And that's not a negative factor. It's just a result of these are rare, complicated processes and doing them right, especially with the modern technologies of inspection, is a difficult thing to do. And so what I think the infrastructure looks like in seven to 10 years is you're going to see you know, Western ingenuity design repeatable processes to build small modular reactors or reactor components or reactor vessels like airplanes and not like airports. And so I think if the West is going to succeed, yes, there are cost advantages to building big, efficient, huge gigawatt class reactors. But if I'm going to put my money on something, it's going to be that designing a factory that has a high degree of automation that produces perfect parts over and over again, perfect welds, inspects the welds, and then out of that factory environment, delivers them to a site for assembly, looks a lot more like where the West successfully builds other things. That, you know, Eastern markets that are succeeding in building big reactors they're good at it and they're building them safely and cost effectively. But with labor costs in the United States and other regulatory you know, issues, if we want to call it that, I think that the path is an economy of, of scale, of doing many, 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 many things over and over again, rather than trying to do it right on a small number of occasions. Um, and I'm hopeful for it. Um, I think we've seen the right 
things so far in the last couple of years that would make me believe that we'll have several commercial SMRs running by 2030, 2031. Um, you know, one in Canada, a couple in Tennessee, and a few elsewhere in Wyoming and, and whatnot. And so, you know, again, like it's an optimist game, nuclear power. And I, I think I see lots of reasons for optimism that, that we can do it. Um, just a matter of actually getting it yeah. done. Jeff, how do people follow up with you? I'm sure, I mean, there's, uh, there's probably going to be a ton of follow-up questions. We'll probably have us do this conversation again before the end of the year, but how do people follow you? Well, I look forward to another conversation um, in the future, I guess, but I think for right now, unfortunately, the best way to contact me is probably my Twitter account. Um, so I'm just Jeff Geringer 92 and, um, you know, I, uh, DMs are always open. And uh, if anybody has um, any interesting work for this free agent, um, my, my line is always open. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Best of luck, buddy. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Always good to see you and talk with you, man. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Going Nuclear, Justin, or myself, and the Clear Commodity Network team and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.